Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, if you have a Bible nearby, turn with me to that passage, to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're looking for it. Uh, Actually, I think a lot of you who are following along with the Bible reading plan probably started reading Exodus this past week. Uh, Or if you're not so good at Bible reading plans, you'll start Exodus in like a couple months, and it'll be great. Uh, It'll be just as good then as if you started it this week, so no worries there. But Exodus 15 is where we'll be here in just a second. Um, if you are just joining us for the first time this morning, if you're new here, let me say, like Marcus did earlier, welcome. We're super glad you're here. Uh, if you have any questions about who we are, what we believe, or any of that, uh, we would love to help answer those. Uh, but just to help catch you up, uh, we have been in a teaching series this beginning of the year all about the Bible and specifically how to read and study the Bible in detail. And so uh, as part of that, uh, we're working through this Bible reading plan together, or a lot of us are. Uh, you can grab one of those on your way out in the lobby. Those are totally free. Feel free to hop in with us as we read through the Bible. Uh, but to help with that process, here at the beginning of the year, we have been doing a series of teachings about the Bible from the Bible about how to understand what we're reading, about how to understand what even the scriptures are meant to do as a whole as we work our way through them. And so that's what we're doing here at the beginning of the year. And specifically for these last three weeks of the series, uh, we are getting immensely practical with all of this. We're spending some time each Sunday talking about one particular genre of literature in the Bible and how to read that genre of literature when we come across it. Now, I realize if you're new to church or the Bible, that sounded like a very strange sentence to you. So let me explain. Uh, Basically, in a nutshell, the Bible is actually a collection of a lot of different books, a lot of different writings that were written by a variety of different authors over a long period of time. So in short, there are several different genres of literature in our Bible. And so each of these last three weeks during the series, we have been focusing on one of those genres and learning how to read it when we come across it in the Bible, how to learn from it and read it well. So last week, if you weren't here, we talked about how to read the largest section of literature in the Bible, and that's narrative. Narrative is basically just a word for any time that the Bible is just trying to explain to us what happened once upon a time. And so we talked in detail about how to read that genre of literature. And then today, we are moving on to the next largest portion of genre of literature in the Bible, and that's poetry. Today we're going to learn how to read biblical poetry when we come across it. So a little bit about poetry in the Bible. Right at a third, 33% of your Bible is made up of poetry. That's a decent chunk of the Bible. 
There are some books that are entirely poetic in nature, or at least almost entirely poetic. Uh, those are books like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, uh, Job, or if you're new to the Bible, Job. Uh, those books are almost entirely poetic, like beginning to end. Uh, but even aside from those books, there are other books of the Bible that have a lot of poetry in them, even if they're not entirely that way. So uh, about half of Isaiah is poetic, about a third of Jeremiah, a good bit of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, in fact, over half of the minor prophets are made up of poetry. Uh, and in fact, if you're looking at just the Old Testament in your Bible, over half of the quoted speech by God himself in the Bible is poetic. Imagine that, God is a poet. Or at least, bare minimum, he likes communicating via poetry an awful lot of the time. So my point in all of this is that understanding how to read poetry is probably more important than many of us think it is when it comes to understanding the Bible and understanding the God of the Bible. Because a large portion of our Bible is biblical poetry. So when you think about poetry, don't just think to yourself, oh, that's stuff that rhymes, right? The, an awful lot of poetry does not rhyme. I know that's usually the most popular type of poetry that we all first get introduced to in our life, but a lot of poetry doesn't rhyme at all. Even in English, plenty of poetry does not rhyme. There are acrostic poems, which is where the first letter of each line combined to spell out a word or a sentence. There are free verse poems that don't hold to any traditional meter or rhythm at all. There are haiku poems, which I won't even pretend to be smart enough to explain to you this morning. But there are all these different types of poetry, and far from all of them actually rhyme. And in fact, in the Bible, no poetry really rhymes. They more rhyme ideas than they rhyme words. We'll get into some of that here in just a bit. But a lot of biblical poetry does not rhyme. Poetry at its core in the Bible is a type of writing that uses language to invoke the emotions and the imagination. That's what poetry does. It attempts to use language in somewhat unconventional ways in order to invite you, the reader, into an experience of some sort. That's what poetry in the Bible is aiming to do. So one very important question for us to answer then, just at a practical level, is how do I know when I'm reading poetry in the Bible? Seems like that would be a good place to start, right? How do I know when what I read in the Bible is, in fact, poetry? Well, luckily, in the Bible, the formatting of poetry gives it away most of the time. So have you ever been reading through your Bible and randomly each line starts getting indented in a different way. Have you noticed that in your Bible at times? I'll pretend that most of you were nodding when I said that. Um, so anytime you see that, anytime it starts using that jagged indenting kind of setup, usually what is happening there is you are reading poetry. It's the author trying to tell you, hey, this is poetry now. You can almost be guaranteed that that's what's happening throughout the Bible. So. With that all being said, now that we've kind of talked about some of the technicalities of poetry, rather than continuing to try to explain the technicalities to you, it might be more helpful if we actually just look at an example of poetry in the Bible and see what we can learn from it. That brings us to Exodus 15. So what we're about to read 
is a song, which is obviously a type of poetry, that celebrates God parting the Red Sea. Now, if you are newer to the Bible or you're not familiar with that story, basically what is happening at this point where we pick it up in the narrative is that God has rescued his people, the Israelites, out of cruel, oppressive slavery in Egypt. And he's trying to lead them away from that situation. And where we pick it up, what actually happens is Pharaoh and his army start chasing down the Israelites in order to recapture them and put them back into slavery. And so they come to this point where they're standing on the shores of the Red Sea and they don't know what to do next. They, they show up and in order for this rescue to work, in order for God's rescue to work, then he has to somehow lead them through the Red Sea. Only problem is they have no boats. And turns out at this point in history, that severely limits your options when it comes to crossing a large body of water. So they have to get through the Red Sea somehow. So what we find out is that God actually parts the waters of the sea, leading the Israelites through it on dry land. And then as soon as Pharaoh and his army start chasing them, he collapses the waters on top of them, effectively rescuing the Israelites. Now, the reason we know all of that is because in Exodus 14, the chapter right before what we're about to read, we get a narrative account of all of that happening. It's sort of this very straightforward, matter-of-fact kind of reading of those events. But then what's interesting is that after that narrative account of all of that happening, the author circles back around and he describes the exact same event, but this time he uses poetry to do it. So this is a poetic account of all of those things happening in the book of Exodus. So I want us to start off by looking at that part of the passage as a way of exploring how poetry works in the Bible. So chapter 15, starting in verse 4. We won't read all of it, but we'll read some of it. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he, he is God in this context, he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them, but you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So we'll just stop there for today. Now, there are all sorts of things in this passage that we could probably talk about as we discuss what poetry is and what it was meant to do. But for today's purposes, let's just focus on a couple of them. First, I want you to notice how vivid and graphic everything is in this poem. So it doesn't just tell you what happened, it helps you imagine it, right? says they went down to the depths like a stone. The waters congealed, it says. Apparently when the waters were split on either side, it was like giant walls of jello somehow. Like that's what it looked like in the moment. 
It says the flood stood up in a heap. Do you see how this poetic reading of the events actually enlists your imagination a little bit more than a narrative would? So as you're reading this, if you're paying attention, it's like you have no choice but to imagine these events in your mind's eye. It causes you to enter into the story in a way that a narrative account might not. I also want you to notice how the author depicts God's actions in the poem. It says, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God sends out his fury in verse 7. In verse 8, it actually depicts the force that pushes back the waters as being, quote, the blast of God's nostrils. Did you guys read that? That's a vivid sentence if I've ever heard one, right? So this brings up a very very important point to be made about biblical poetry. Poetry is not mainly concerned with being literal or precise. That's not what poetry does. That's just not its goal. For instance, the author of Exodus here is not trying to make the argument that any time the wind blows on planet Earth, it's actually coming from a divine set of nostrils up in the sky. Like We realize that as we read it, right? Uh, In a similar way, when we read that God's, quote, right hand did all of these things, we aren't meant to read the passage and go, God did all of this without even using his left hand? That's incredible. It's not the point of the poem, right? It's, It's not trying to be literal. It's not trying to be precise. It's trying to describe for us an experience. It's trying to help us experience what the author was experiencing. It's trying to help us picture it and feel it in our mind's eye. So what he's doing is using figurative, imaginative language to help us experience all of these events. He wants to help us see the might and the power of God and what happened at the Red Sea in this moment. And so he stretches and he adapts the meaning of words and phrases in order to accomplish all of that in his writing. That's what poetry does. Lots of poems are not precise because that's not their purpose. Just like most science textbooks are not very entertaining because that's not their purpose, right? That's just the point of poetry. That's how poetry works in a lot of ways. So we don't read poetry as if it is trying to be literal or precise. So those are two things to consider about poetry. I I did not have time to go into detail about all the other things that would be helpful to know as you read through poetry, but I think those are two things that at least get us started as we try to explore what biblical poetry is. So with all that in mind, let's talk through the questions that we can ask when we read biblical poetry. Just like we did last week, we'll sort of just rattle through these questions really quickly and then we'll go back through and we'll actually use them to study a couple different passages in the story to see how all of this works. Make sense? Here are the questions to ask when you read uh, biblical poetry. First, what experience is the author describing? What experience is the author describing? the first question we ask. Second, what imagery are they using to describe it? What imagery are they using to describe it? Third, what does the imagery they use tell us about the experience? What does the imagery they use tell us about the experience? Next, how do their words connect to any similar experiences that we might have? How do their words connect to anything that we might experience? And lastly, How does this experience that they describe lead us to Jesus? 
How does this experience lead us to Jesus? So those are our questions. Those are the questions we can ask when we read biblical poetry to try to get at what it's trying to communicate to us. To see how these questions work, let's use them to work through a passage or two in the Bible. We'll start by looking at a fairly dark example of poetry in the Bible. Turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. If you're using one of our Bibles, page numbers should be up on the screen. Lamentations chapter 3. <clears throat> so Lamentations, while you're getting there, uh, tends not to be a wildly popular book of the Bible for most Christians, uh, mainly because it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a book of laments or mourning or complaining uh, in the Bible. Lamentations is written about a time in history where God is allowing his people to experience some somewhat severe consequences of their sin. So it's written at a time where the nation of Israel has rejected God and run from God and refused to listen to God at nearly every turn. And now they are reaping the fruit of all of that. And so most of the book is just poetic descriptions of that time in Israel's history. So some people, the one part of Lamentations that a lot of Christians have heard of is uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, talks about God's mercies being new every morning. You've probably heard of that verse if you've been around the church for long. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that that's pretty much the only bright spot in the whole book. <laughs> the rest of it reads a lot more like what we're about to read today. So with that in mind, Lamentations 3, start with me in verse 1. We'll just read a section of it for our purposes this morning. Lamentations 3, starting in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Just FYI, he or his in this, in this passage is also referring to God. I, might, that, I know that might seem kind of crazy, but that's who he's talking about. I have seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his head again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate and he bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. So, welcome to City Church. Uh, just here to encourage you today with nice, fluffy passages from the Bible. Um, so, this is intense, right? A little bit. Nowhere around it. This is an intense passage of Scripture. And honestly, uh, for most of us, especially those of us that have been around church or the Bible very long, 
it's a little bit disturbing, right? I mean, maybe what is most disturbing about all of it is that the author seems to be attributing all of this brokenness and darkness that he is in to God. It's like he's saying that God is responsible directly for all of it. This is a poem about what he feels like God has done to him. And what we'll see here in just a second is that more broadly, it's about what he feels like God has done to the nation of Israel. So let's see if we can use our questions that we just mentioned to make sense out of all of this. First question, what experience is the author describing? What experience is the author describing? So there's sort of two levels to answering this question. On one level, the author is experiencing what feels like extreme discipline or suffering or even abandonment from God. He feels like his life is one long tragedy and that God is somehow behind it all. But on another level, what you'll find out if you do much digging at all into the context of this passage is that the man speaking in first person in this poem is actually intended to be a sort of representative of the nation of Israel as a whole. So he uses singular language in the first person like I or me or mine, but really he is describing how the nation of Israel feels communally at this point in history, specifically how they feel during a part of their story when Babylon laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. That's what he's describing. He's sort of describing the cumulative effect that that moment in history had on God's people. Now, just in case you're wondering, uh, I didn't just deduce all of that from the passage itself, okay? That's in any good commentary, study Bible, the Bible Project videos that we suggested to you. You'll find any of that information in those. I just didn't want you to think I somehow inferred that just from what we have in front of us. I know that's a little bit confusing, but it's, a, it's one man who sort of is the representative of Israel as a whole. But that's what the author is describing, a time where God allowed something horrible to happen to his people. Second question, what imagery are they using to describe it? What imagery are they using to describe it? Well, all kinds of imagery, really. He first uses the imagery of violence. He uses the imagery of violence. He says that he has been under the rod of God's wrath and that he is, God has driven his arrows into his kidneys. That sounds painful, right? Driven his arrows into his kidneys. Uh, the author also enlists the imagery of illness and injury throughout the poem. He says that he feels like his flesh and his skin has wasted away, feels like God has broken his bones. He also uses the imagery of darkness and chains in a number of times in the poem. And we could probably go on, right? There's probably three or four more kind of groups of imagery that he uses in this passage. But those are the types of imagery that that the author uses to help us envision the experience that he's describing. Next question. What does the imagery they use tell us about the experience? What does the imagery that he uses here tell us about the experience? Well, to put it lightly and kind of broadly, he is depicting the people of Jerusalem in a dire state, right? They're not in a good situation. We can definitely conclude that. But to be more descriptive, his language in the passage seems to be insisting that it feels like God is out to get them. 
He's describing that it feels like God is out to get them, like they have a target on their back. In fact, that exact language is used in the passage, right? Like they have a target on their back and that God is seemingly purposefully inflicting all of this suffering on them. Do you all feel that in the language of the passage and some of the imagery that he uses? So to the author, it doesn't feel like this is just sort of random, senseless suffering that is happening to them. It actually feels like God is singling them out. feels like God has a target on their back and that he's allowing this suffering, this hurt, to reach an almost unbearable level. Now, there are a number of things that we need to dissect during this question precisely because of how odd they are to hear someone say about God. So there are a number of things in this passage that are actually polar opposite of what we know to be true about God in general. So it says twice in the passage that God has, quote, filled him with bitterness. Now, question, does God fill people with bitterness in the Bible? A couple of times, the Bible actually tells us that God wants us to put away bitterness, right? Now, he may, there may be situations that he allows to happen that lead to bitterness, but God does not directly fill us with bitterness and then tell us to put it away. Uh, next, it says that God has made his steps crooked. Does God, make, does God make people's steps crooked? Actually, a number of times in the Bible, it says that God makes our paths straight, Right? Uh, he calls God a bear or a lion lying in wait for him, waiting to destroy him. Does that sound like God to you guys? No. In fact, a number of times in the Bible, that's actually the, the description almost verbatim given to us of Satan, right? Satan is a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. So what's going on here, Right? I mean, he's, he's describing things that if you read much in your Bible, you actually know not to be true about God. So this is where it's so important to remember that what we are reading is poetry. It is not primarily concerned with theological accuracy. It's primarily concerned with describing an experience, with inviting you into an experience and help you sense and feel what the author senses and feels. We're immediately meant to read this passage and go, wait, something's off. Something's off if, if this person and God's people in general are, are believing these very obviously untrue things about God, they must be in a really bad place then. We're meant to read it and be bothered by it. That's actually part of the intention. It's meant to communicate to us just how distraught the author is, just how bad of a place the nation of Israel is in if these are the types of things that they are believing about who God is. Does that make sense? Next question. How do their words connect to any similar experiences that we might have? How do their words connect to any similar experiences that we might have? So maybe none of us have been in quite this dark of a place with our relationship with God. Or maybe we have, I don't know. But chances are a lot of us have experienced times in our lives where it seems like we are receiving hurt and pain and sorrow rather than joy from the Lord. 
I would imagine a lot of us have been in a place like that, whether it's this severe or not. And we might even have hit a place in those moments where we feel like God himself is behind that pain and sorrow and where we feel like he's allowed it to reach an almost unbearable level in our lives or in the lives of the community around us. Chances are we have been in that type of place before on some level. So there's a friend of mine um, who has just experienced an inordinate amount of suffering in his life. I think I've mentioned him to you guys before on Sundays, but uh, essentially this guy's a, a pastor, um, a good friend of mine. He, uh, he and his wife struggled with infertility for years. Um, and then eventually uh, they got pregnant with sextuplets, that's six babies. Um, and then before they carried them to term, they lost all six babies. Later on, uh, they became pregnant again, gave birth to a little girl. That girl, when she was three years old, was diagnosed with cancer. Later on, they were pregnant again. That baby had a uh, disorder with her skull where it didn't fully develop, so she only survived for a few minutes after she was born. So, yeah, just an inordinate amount of suffering, like the amount of suffering that you look at and you go, why, why them again, Right? That's what all of us were thinking every time something like this would happen to them. And I know my friend, specifically the father of this family, he, he even said on a number of occasions, not, not like in a selfish way or arrogant way or any of that, he just said when some of these things happen, he just said, I just don't understand why this is happening to us again. And so whether it's moments like that or whether it's something that on the surface feels less severe than that, I think part of the reason we are given poems like what we find in Lamentations 3 and other places throughout the Bible, I think we're given these poems so that we know that there is space in our relationship with God to be battling thoughts like that. Where we go, I just don't understand why this is happening to me. This feels like too much, God. This feels unfair. This feels like you're singling me out. It feels like there's a target on my back when it comes to suffering, and I just don't understand why that's the case. I think part of the reason we are given passages like this one is so that we know there is room for that mentality, for those types of thoughts in our relationship with God. In fact, one of the most incredible things to me about the Bible is that in the Bible, the blunt, honest words of God's suffering people become God's words to us. He takes some of these darkest moments in people's lives, he takes some of these darkest moments in the nation of Israel's communal life together, and, and he allows them to pray these really blunt, really honest prayers of lament to him, and then he documents them and gives them to us so that we might know there's space for that in our relationship with God. The words of God's suffering people have become God's words to us in our suffering. It's like God is saying, not only is it understandable that you might feel this way, but here are some examples of some other people who have felt what you feel. And here's some examples of prayers that they prayed so that you might know you are not alone in this experience. So how good is God that he provides those sorts of things for us? 
How good is it that when we are suffering, the Bible does not just tell us to get over it, correct our theology, and move on. In the moments where we are suffering, we are given these blunt, honest words of other people who have suffered so that we might know we can bring those things honestly to God. So in answering this question about poetry, we might say something like this. When we suffer and struggle and when we struggle with God's involvement in it all, there is space for bringing our difficulties and complaints with us to him. There is space for bringing those things to him. They are not something we have to hide or pretend like they're not there. Now, let me say something very important. That doesn't mean that our relationship with God should stop at lamenting and complaining at all seasons, okay? That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Our relationship with God shouldn't terminate on those things, but it can absolutely start there. And so if you're here and you're suffering and you're struggling and maybe you're here today and you identify with the author of Lamentations because to you, it feels like there's a target on your back when it comes to suffering. I want you to know there's room to bring that to God in prayer. I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to our relationship with God is that we feel like we can only approach him when we're doing well. And that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has room for all of it when we're doing well and when we're doing horribly and when we really struggle with what God's purposes are in it all. So that is part of what a living, breathing relationship with God may very well look like. When we suffer and when we struggle, there's room to bring that with us to God in prayer. Lastly, how does this experience lead us to Jesus? How does this experience lead us to Jesus? Well, according to the Bible, the people of Israel are not the only ones to experience suffering. They aren't even the only ones to experience the type of suffering that seems like it is from God directly. In fact, according to Isaiah, Jesus felt very similar. He is referred to as the, quote, suffering servant. Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows, someone who was acquainted with grief. It even goes on to say that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. So Jesus, more than anything, knows what it feels like to suffer the, quote, rod of God's wrath. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like because he actually did experience that on the cross. Scripture tells us that part of what was happening when Jesus was brutally murdered on a Roman cross is that he was absorbing all of the just anger and wrath towards the sin and the injustice in the world, that he was absorbing all of that on our behalf. So if anybody knows what it feels like to suffer under the rod of God's wrath, Jesus knows personally. He certainly understands what that feels like. And it is because he experienced that that those of us who follow Jesus know that we never have to. It's because he experienced that that we know we never have to as followers of Jesus. What I mean by that is that we can know even in the moments where we feel like God is smiting us, crushing us, overwhelming us with suffering, that Jesus actually endured all of that for us on God's behalf, on our behalf, I'm sorry. So we may still suffer on this earth. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. We may suffer greatly, 
during our time on this earth. And God might use any of that to grow us and establish us in a variety of ways. But because of what Jesus endured on the cross, we know that God's wrath is no longer directed towards us as followers of Jesus. It's no longer aimed at those who know and follow him. We no longer have to experience that because Jesus already did. That is how this type of experience, I think, is meant to lead us to Jesus. So one passage down, another one to go. That one was heavy, right? Let's do one that's a little bit lighter in some ways. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. As we mentioned earlier, the book of Psalms is almost entirely made up of poetry from a few different authors encompassing a wide variety of different circumstances and experiences. This one specifically that we're about to read, Psalm 139, is describing an experience that is almost exactly opposite the one that we just read about in Lamentations. There, the author was overcome by how distant and antagonistic God felt to him. But in this passage, Psalm 139, the author is actually overwhelmed with how close and intimate God feels to him in this moment. So let's start off by reading just a portion of this passage to sort of get a feel for what it's all about. Start with me in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Okay, we'll stop right there for today. Are you beginning to pick up on the tone of this poem? Whereas the last passage we read in Lamentations mourned how distant God felt, in this one the psalmist is caught up in wonder and awe at how near and present God feels to him. So with that in mind, let's work through our questions. First, what experience is the author describing? He is describing an experience of being thoroughly known and seen and understood by God. I think that's one way we could summarize it being thoroughly known, seen, and understood by God. That one's pretty straightforward. Next question. What imagery are they using to describe it? What imagery are they using? Well, I think at least in the verses we just read, the author is using a lot of spatial imagery. He's talking about where God is, talking about God's location in the world around him. Um, So he says that God hems him in behind and before, which is a way of saying that everywhere he goes, he feels continually enveloped in God's presence in some way. 
He then says that if he ascends to heaven, God is there. If he makes his bed in Sheol, God is there too. So he's talking about where God is. He's using this, the, these languages that are kind of like, we, we would say something like from top to bottom. He's using these contrasting images, images to talk about how near and how present and how vast God is. Now, you might have read that last part of the verse that talks about God being in Sheol and thought to yourself, what is Sheol? <laughs> Where is Sheol exactly? Well, Sheol is sort of this ancient Old Testament understanding of hell or the underworld would be maybe a more literal translation. The place where the wicked go when they die. So this is one more example of why it's important that you don't take poetry literally, right? I actually know people who are universalists or Christian universalists that would say, see right here, it says that God is present in hell. And you're jumping a few steps there in general, but also to say that is to completely miss the point of this psalm, right? Because he, he's not trying to make a theological point about the locations that God is. He's trying to say, God, this is how vast you are, that it doesn't matter how far I go, it doesn't matter where I am, you are with me. That's what is trying to be communicated in this poem. So, it's not literal, it's experiential. It's meant to help us experience what the psalmist is experiencing in this moment. Next question. What does the imagery that they use tell us about their experience? What does the imagery they use tell us about what they're experiencing? Well, we've sort of mentioned this already, but I think the vast sweeping language used in this passage tells us that the psalmist is sort of blown away by the vastness and ever-present nature of God. He's blown away by it. It's like he's grasping for the language he needs to adequately describe how near to God he feels in this moment, how known by God he feels in this moment. He feels like God is in front of him, behind him, far above him, far below him. It's his way of describing how present and how vast God is, how available God is to him. We're witnessing the author be blown away in worship about God's presence in his life. Next question. How do their words connect to any similar experiences we might have? How do they connect to any similar experiences that you and I might have? Well, put simply, I think it helps us worship in moments where we feel the almost palpable presence of God. I don't know how long you've been following Jesus, but what I've noticed is that there are moments where I feel kind of like the author of Lamentations, where I feel like God is distant from me, antagonistic towards me, I don't understand what God is doing. But I've also noticed that there are moments where I am just caught up in who God is and how present he is to me. I'll have a conversation with a friend where they just told me exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And there was no doubt about it that that was the Holy Spirit speaking through them. There'll be moments where I'm riding home in my car and something has just happened. I've just seen transformation in somebody's life and I've got worship music playing on the car and I just feel blown away and how mighty and how present and how vast God is and how he's working in so many ways, most of which I don't even notice. If you've followed Jesus for very long, what you've probably noticed is that you go through both of those types of moments where you feel distant from God and where you feel unbelievably close from God. Sometimes they can be hours apart from one another, right? And I think in moments where we feel the palpable presence of God in our life in some way, I think this psalm is one of the places where we find words to express that. 
In fact, that's what the book of Psalms is. It's an it's a ancient worship book. It's like a hymnal book for God's people throughout the years to know how to worship God in many of these different moments. So I think it helps us worship in moments where we feel the presence of God in really palpable ways. Last question. How does this experience lead us to Jesus? How does this experience lead us to Jesus? I think it prompts us to remember that this nearness of God that the psalmist feels is only possible through Jesus. It's only possible through Jesus. So God is not near to us because he thinks we're awesome. He's not near to us because he thinks we're fun to be around. God is near to us because in Jesus, God has redeemed the relational brokenness that was between us and God the Father. Through the cross, he has actually bridged the relational separation that existed there because of our sin. Ephesians chapter two tells us that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. So when we, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, when we celebrate the nearness of God to us, what we are truly celebrating is Jesus and what Jesus accomplished on the cross so that that could be possible. Does that make sense? That's what we can glean from this passage, from this poem. So in conclusion, are you starting to see how poetry differs a little bit from narrative that we studied last week? So whereas narrative seeks to sort of, in a very straightforward way, describe events in history, poetry actually seeks to draw you into an experience. It wants to help you see through the eyes of the author directly. It wants to help you feel what they feel, sense what they sense in some way, experience what they experience. And because of that, you will find in the Bible a wide range of different experiences that God's people go through. Because following Jesus encompasses a wide range of experiences, even from one day to the next. So some of the poetry in the Bible actually describes an experience that God is having which is a little bit different today. We mainly just covered passages where it, exp- uh, it describes people's experiences with God, but there's actually lots of passages in the Bible, as we mentioned earlier, that describe God's experiences. Plenty of passages where God describes his experiences with man, his joys, his sorrows, his love, his frustrations with his people. But all of the poetry in the Bible is meant to draw us in to an experience, to help us experience those things as if we were there, to try to help us feel what the author is feeling. So as we land today, I would love to just have all of us consider one thing. Something I've noticed about myself is that over the years, I tend to be very dialed into loving God with my mind. That that tends to come very naturally To me, I can spend hours reading and studying and thinking about God. I can spend hours listening to podcasts that talk about ideas of the Bible and talk about ideas of who God is. I I tend to find it very natural to love God with my mind. But I tend to be very bad at loving God with my heart. It tends to be very difficult to me to love God with my emotions, with my soul, with the rest of my being outside of my mind. 
It's like my emotional IQ when it comes to relationship with God is like in the single digits. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced that before, but I feel like that might be a thing for a lot of followers of Jesus is that we very instinctively love God with our minds, but have a really difficult time loving God with our hearts. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because I think one of the reasons there is so much poetry in our Bible is that God wants us to learn to love him with our heart. God wants us to learn how to love him with our heart. He wants to get your emotions involved when it comes to your relationship with him. And we're in luck because when it comes to the Bible that we hold in our hands, a third of it, a third is made up of men and women allowing their emotions to be a guide through their relationship with God. Now notice, I said a guide, not the guide. That's important. That's an important distinction. Truth about God is also a guide. What he communicates to us about who he is, the facts about him found in the scriptures, those are also a guide. So our emotions are not the guide, they're not the authority, in how we interact with God, but they're also not meant to be cast aside in the whole process. I think what you'll find as you read through the poetry in the Bible is that people in the Bible are good at loving God with their mind, but they also know how to love God with their heart, with their emotions. They know how to get those things involved, so it's not just an intellectual exercise. Worship is not an intellectual exercise. It's something meant to encompass all of our being. And you're gonna need that as a follower of Jesus. Because plenty of people will tell you from experience, when the hardest moments of life hit, you will need more than just your mind to be dialed into who God is. You'll need more than just your mind. You'll need more than just right thinking. You'll absolutely need right thinking, but you'll need way more than that when the hardest moments of life hits. You will also need your heart. You will need the ability to sing and pray and vent and process all the emotions that will inevitably hit you in those seasons. And that is a big part of what poetry is trying to do in the Bible. It helps us see that when it comes to feeling unbearably distant from God and unbelievably close to God and everything in between, there's space for all of that in our relationship with him. Poetry is trying to help us see that we're not alone, that we're not the only people to ever feel the way that we're feeling in this moment. And God wants us to know how to draw near to him in those moments, and how not to just know things about him, but to experience who he is in the core of our being, in our hearts and our minds. And that's why biblical poetry should matter to us as followers of Jesus. Let me pray for us.